In the last episode, we learned about Canada's patriation when Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and nine provincial premiers cut a deal on a package of sweeping constitutional reforms, including a new constitutional amending formula and a national charter of rights and freedoms. At the same time, though, we also learned that this package was passed without the consent of Quebec, which was a problem in much the same way as the recent implementation of Brexit without the consent of Scotland and Northern Ireland has been a problem for the UK. The difference, though, is that while successive UK governments ignored regional dissent on Brexit, in 1984, Canada elected a Prime Minister who made it his mission over the next eight years to right the apparent wrong of 1981 and to get Quebec's signature on the Constitution. This is Charlottetown, a podcast series that presents some of the stories and the debates behind Canada's first and still only constitutional referendum. This series is brought to you by the Centre for Constitutional Studies, a hub for research and public education at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. I'm your series host, Dr. Richard Mealy, and today's guests are Kathy Brock, Deborah Coyne, Naomi Metallic, and Daniel Turp. So as I mentioned in the intro, there's a very significant changing of the political guards after patriation, and the two most consequential changes are firstly the election of the Conservative, Brian Mulroney, as Canadian Prime Minister, and secondly the election of Robert Bourassa as the Liberal Premier of Quebec. And unlike Trudeau and Levesque, who espoused fundamentally opposed visions for Canada and Quebec, it quickly became clear that Mulroney and Bourassa were quite capable of working together for that elusive goal of getting Quebec's signature on the Constitution. That goal of basically doing what Trudeau and the provinces had failed to do in 1981. Now with that said, the story that I want to tell in this episode, the story that I think we need to tell, isn't actually about Mulroney or Bourassa, but it's a story instead about the Canadians who mobilise against them and against their intentionally Quebec-centric constitutional project. So to give you the backstory here, Mulroney and Bourassa worked together with the other nine provinces to cut a new constitutional deal in the spring of 1987, a deal known as the Meech Lake Accord. And the accord was basically about meeting Quebec's minimum demands on the constitution. So there are a number of different issues that were touched on, including immigration and the federal spending power. But really the, the beating heart of the package, the symbolic core of the package, if you like, was something called the Distinct Society Clause, an interpretive clause that recognised Quebec's special status in Canada, given its unique language and culture and law. So this was understandably pretty popular in Quebec, and all 10 provincial premiers agreed to it. But under the constitutional amending formula adopted in 1982, the full accord could only become law and become part of the constitution if it was ratified by all 10 provincial legislatures plus the federal parliament within three years of the first ratification. And so Quebec, predictably, ratified the deal very quickly on June 23rd, 1987, which gave opponents of the accord three years until June 23rd, 1990, to mobilise against it. And as Professor Cathy Brock explains, there were issues with the accord that a lot of folks didn't feel they could ignore. One of the very first criticisms that comes to mind is that it was a process in which 11 
white men locked in a room made an agreement on the Constitution. People felt that it was exclusive. It didn't take other people from different parts of society into account, and it was what they could negotiate. And I think that has to be put in context, because Meech Lake was signed in, well, between late April and May, June of 1987. And what people often forget is that the Aboriginal round of constitutional discussions had concluded in March of that year. And a lot of the same language that was used for Meech Lake was language that people refused to use for Aboriginal people and apply to their situation. And I use Aboriginal people because that was the term terminology of the day. As a result, the Indigenous community was very engaged and was starting to mobilize. And so another criticism coming out of different groups in Canada was that Indigenous people had not been included, and this was a slap in the face to them after their rounds had failed so badly. Also, the hearings process during Meech Lake. We had our leading premiers, so the Premier of Ontario, the Prime Minister of Canada, saying the Premier of Quebec, saying that this document could not be altered. The Premier of Ontario even said at the time, our blood is on this document. So we will have the hearings, we will listen to people, but unless, as the Prime Minister said, there are egregious errors, we will not change it. So people began to ask, well then what's the point of the hearings? In addition to these concerns with the sort of exclusivity of the Meech process, there were also prominent concerns about the distinct society clause, which basically came down to the idea that a clause recognising Quebec's special status in Canada could be interpreted by the courts to grant Quebec extra power, including the power people feared, to infringe charter rights in ways that other provinces couldn't. And as you might expect, these fears were especially strong among rights advocacy groups. Now, we're going to return to Professor Brock shortly to discuss her experiences in Manitoba, where the Meech Lake Accord met particularly staunch opposition. But Meech also met staunch opposition in Newfoundland, and one of the key players there was Deborah Coyne, who told us about her journey from being a young academic in Toronto to being on the front lines of a national battle on the East Coast over Canada's constitutional future. Uh, I realized this just went so contrary to my understanding of our constitution and my um, understanding of mostly at that point federal provincial dynamics and how the federal government was going to be weakened across the board and it made me realize that something had to be done because I was convinced that people, other people had to be like me and maybe I was just lucky because I could articulate it a little easier. So, um, within a week of it coming out where even even Within a week, there was, a, first of all, a meeting with uh, my fellow constitutional professors. And they just sort of said to me around, we were sitting around the table going, oh, well, I guess we're just going to add in the material on the Meech Lake Accord. <laughs> At that point, I, that's when I realized I, I went, what? No, it's never going to pass. This is just, you, you know, the worst thing that could possibly have emerged. And so that sort of made me start thinking there had to be some sort of opposition. There had to be a way that people could express it because I could not believe I was on, on my own. So um, I can't remember how I came up with this idea, but I thought 
I, I got called up for Metro Morning, which is our early morning show at the time. And I just did a, a five-minute little thing with whoever it was at the time. And I so I laid out some of the reasons why I just thought it was not the right thing and, and summarized things. And so then they said something like, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, we're going to hold um, a forum so we can discuss it on. And I just gave the day. I think it was just not that day, but two days from there. <laughs> and I hadn't checked with the law school at all. And um, and so uh, suddenly the the phone lines apparently went down. In, and this is 1987, so you can understand, in the, uh, in the main office of the U of T Law School, because people were calling, calling, calling and saying, when is this forum? We're going to be there. We're going to be there. And that's when I realized that this was, you know, like I was not alone. Having marked herself out as someone fervently opposed to Meech, and as someone capable of articulating persuasive arguments against it, Ms. Coyne began to receive phone calls from different interest groups looking for help in opposing the accord. I was just constantly getting phone calls from the March of Dimes about disabled rights. It was, as, the, as the issue of the Charter became uh, more salient, that was there. Um, as there was, of course, some anti-Quebec stuff, and we always stomped that down because it was it was counterproductive, and there, you know, that was just that was divisive. Uh, so that, um, and so uh, I uh, women's groups. Gosh, women were you know we had just got equal rights and everything in 1982 with the Patriation. Here we are five years later with a distinct society clause that was clearly going to have some impact. On, on charter rights once you introduce this notion of collective rights into uh, a document that is otherwise for individual rights. It was just, uh, you know, it, it was just astounding. It was one thing after another um, that you could see that was going to have some sort of implication. Anyway, it was just a matter of deciding that the civil society groups were going to have to be the opposition to this because there was, it looked like every single political leader provincially and federally was supporting it. They were going to just be pushing it through their legislatures. And, you know, so democracy, you know, was not going to work in that sense. And it was going to ignore what I felt was the, the, um, the real voice of the people. So this is only the start of Miss Coyne's story because she ends up playing a very big, very direct role in opposing the accord when a liberal constitutional lawyer, Clyde Wells, gets elected as Premier of Newfoundland in 1989. Now at this point Newfoundland had actually already ratified the Meech Lake Accord, but Clyde Wells was looking to change that, and as it turned out, he was looking for help. 89, I got this call actually from, I guess, uh, a colleague in, in probably our rep in, in Newfoundland saying, hey, guess what? Just elected a new premier and he really doesn't like Meech. And so that was, I, I had had that call. And that's when I started looking at it and going, oh, wow, he could actually rescind it. And he was very articulate. None of the, uh, he, he seemed to have all the right reasons. He, and he was a constitutional lawyer himself. But not only that, he was right on side the West with Senate reform. He really wanted an elected equal Senate. Um, so I thought, wow, this is great. So yes, I got a call. I can't remember. Oh, well, my friends will remember. I was babysitting their tiny, tiny son one night because they wanted he had just been born. And so I was creeping around in my apartment, uh, trying not to wake him up. And uh, uh, they, they always remember this because they said they went out in the one in the evening and then came back and I was moving to Newfoundland. <laughs> but uh, I, wait a sec, I should back it up. It wasn't that 
that call. There was one call where he was coming to, to Osgood Hall to speak. So I went and saw him, spoke to him. Uh, he was great. I didn't, we didn't talk working with him at that point, but I offered to certainly provide him with all our materials and backup because what he needed was backup because the entire civil service, of course, was in his predecessor's mold and was very much, this is great for the, you know, Newfoundland, blah, blah, blah. So it was a couple of weeks later where I got this call and said, um, he, he was very, very careful in saying to me, I cannot promise I will rescind. It's not something I can do. It's a, it's a democratic thing. I cannot say, uh, but I need your help. Uh, and if you want to come with no promises, and I'm saying this because he's a great guy and I, he had made it a thousand percent clear that this was, uh, he couldn't promise it, but would I come? So I on the spot <laughs> with a little baby <laughs> sitting in the corner and it decided, well, I mean, the aim was to kill the deal. Like, you know, it had to be stopped. Who was in the best position to do it? He was at this point, a single um, uh, premier was all that it would take, who wasn't, you know, boxed in by as they were in New Brunswick or, or Manitoba. And so I said, yes. <laughs> and that's, and that's how I literally was there within 10 days by um, Thanksgiving anyway of 1989. In the end, Clyde Wells does rescind ratification to put Newfoundland back in play on April 6th, 1990, just a few months before the June ratification deadline for Meech. At this point, though, I want to head back over to Professor Brock, who experiences a, a kind of awakening of her own after leaving Ontario, like Miss Coyne, and moving to Manitoba, where she worked as chief political advisor to the Manitoba Task Force on the Meech Accord. Well, when I was at the University of Toronto as a student, I, and I had first heard about Meech Lake, I was very excited because this brought Quebec and the rest of Canada closer. And I thought, this is a very successful document in doing that. However, when I went out to Manitoba and I started to listen to the average citizen talk about this, my students speak about it, and then when I began work with the Manitoba Task Force on Meech Lake and I attended every single hearing that was held in the province with the task force, as well as I was probably one of the very few people who read every brief and listened to every presentation about the Accord, I became convinced that some changes had to be made. First of all, women's rights had to be protected from the effects of the Distinct Society Clause. Secondly, the, the Indigenous case was very compelling, and the impact that the changes to the spending power of the federal government would have on some of our more vulnerable communities was very strong. So I was convinced that Meech-like had to be amended before it could be passed. As Professor Brock just mentioned, the Indigenous case against Meech was especially compelling. And as she'd mentioned earlier in the episode, this case basically came down to a sense of frustration that Canada was accommodating Quebec's request for more governmental power, having only just recently refused to do the same for Indigenous peoples during a series of failed constitutional conferences in 84, 85 and 87. So as a result of this apparent double standard, Indigenous opposition to Meech was very strong nationally, but it ends up being particularly strong and particularly effective where Professor Brock is in Manitoba. When the Meech-like Accord was signed by the Premiers and by the Prime Minister, at, the at that time, the then Premier of Manitoba 
warned the other premiers that he was going to have a very difficult time in getting that accord through his legislature because he said he could see a lot of Indigenous representatives in particular, but also people who were friends of the Indigenous community objecting to the Meech-like Accord. Again, bear in mind, this came very shortly after the constitutional talks on Aboriginal rights had come to a conclusion with no amendment to the Accord, except for the ones that were done in 1983. But the 1985-1987 processes were very bitter, and they hadn't resulted in the recognition of Aboriginal self-government that Indigenous leaders had been pressing for. So that sets an important context there. One of the big concerns then for Manitoba was the fact that Meech Lake did not recognize the rights of Indigenous people and the right to self-government in particular. Also, the language of distinct society could equally well be applied to Indigenous people as it could to Quebec. And so there was that tension there. So that was one source of opposition. There was a second source. And a quick anecdote will impress how important this one was. When the task force journeyed to a community in southern Manitoba that was settled by a lot of people from Eastern Europe and Eastern Germany. We walked into the gymnasium where the hearing was going to be held. And I was leading. I was at the head of the task force. And so I walked in and I said, excuse me. And the room was packed and we had to get to the front. No one moved. So then I, I thought, okay. So I said, excusez-moi, and no one moved, at which point Vic Taves, who was standing behind me, said, excuse me, in German. And then the crowd parted, and the task force walked up to the front of the room. And that was a sign from that community that they felt that their issues had not been addressed in Meech Like Accord. It was about an old vision of Canada the English-French vision of Canada, instead of Canada in all its diversity. The question that struck me at this point in my interview with Professor Brock was, why Manitoba? Uh, why was this the place, or at least one of the key places, where opposition to Meech, and especially Indigenous opposition to Meech, seemed to crystallise so perfectly? Well, that's fascinating, and that's in part because of um, confluence of events that were going on, but also the nature of Manitoba. Uh, one of the things about Manitoba is its Indigenous community has been very active in national politics. When you go back in history, you can see leaders for the Assembly of um, First Nations, for its predecessor organization, the National Indian Brotherhood, being drawn from Manitoba. First Nations were mobilized, um, in part. Meech-like encouraged that mobilization right across the country. But if you also look at Manitoba at the time, when the agreement was signed, the NDP was in office. The NDP then fought an election, and they lost. The leader of the Liberal Party during that campaign had announced that if the Liberals were elected, then Meech-like Accord would go down. They would not support it. 
and the conservatives had said they would support the federal government, but their support was a little more qualified. So when the conservatives came in, then they had to address this question of how are we going to handle Meech Lake? So they delayed, but then in about December, they announced that their their intention to go ahead with the Meech Lake Accord and ratification in the legislature. Right after the conservative government had introduced the Meech Lake Accord for ratification in the legislature, the Quebec signs decision came down from the Supreme Court of Canada. That decision caused people to stand on the grounds of the Quebec legislature and call for reform to their legislation to protect the French language and to ensure that signs could, would be predominantly in French. At that time, the Premier of Manitoba called the Premier of Quebec and said, if you press ahead of this, given the difficulty we just had in addressing French as a minority language issue, this could cause a backlash in our province and it could mobilize people to oppose the Meech-like Accord. The Premier of Quebec said, when I have so many people standing on the grounds of the legislature protesting, I have to go ahead with it. So at that time then, the Manitoba government delayed proceeding with the Meech-like Accord and came up with the idea that it would have public hearings in the spring to look at ratification of the Meech-like Accord. In the end, it's Manitoba that deals the key fatal blow to the Meech Accord, and it's a single Indigenous lawmaker, Elijah Harper, who found himself in a position in the Manitoba legislature to effectively block ratification. So uh, this is where things get a bit complicated, but basically Manitoba required unanimous consent in the legislature to dispense with public hearings on Meech, which would have dragged on beyond the ratification deadline. And when the question was asked on bypassing these hearings, Elijah Harper stood with an eagle feather in hand and repeatedly refused to give his consent. And so this is how a single lawmaker in a single province was able to derail the Meech Amendment process. People often see Elijah Harper standing up in the Manitoba legislature and say that he was a hero for opposing the Meech-like accord, but they don't understand the strength that that actually took from a man. Elijah Harper had come from the Cree community. He was a very humble, humble leader who believed his role was really to represent his people. He was a very shy person. So for him to stand up in the legislature and oppose the Meech-like Accord took a lot out of him personally. He told me later that his knees were shaking and that when he stood with the feather, knowing that he was breaking legislative rules by having an eagle feather in the legislature, he had to use all of his strength but he did it because he really believed in what he was doing for his people. And he believed his people needed a voice. 
So crucially, while Elijah Harper stood alone on the floor of the Manitoba legislature, he did so with the direct support of groups like the Assembly of First Nations and the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. And as Professor Naomi Metallic explains, it was the failure of Canadian governments to accommodate Indigenous concerns and aspirations during the mid-1980s that had left Indigenous groups with little choice but to move from negotiation to the type of creative disruption that they practiced effectively through Harper in Manitoba. I've read a few pieces. There's a really great article that I read um, from a collection called Drumbeat, and it was George Erasmus, who, sorry, who was the chief of the AFN at the time, wrote like an excellent introduction to that. And he was talking about how by the you know, by 88, 89, they were moving to more sort of direct action to get the, the come to the attention of the Canadian public because of all that dancing around the table, um, their issues not being taken seriously, um, poverty levels being in community and just the status quo being unacceptable. Um, yeah. And so feeling driven to, to that. Now, obviously, what happened around Meach Lake Grand really changed things for Charlottetown. And I'm sure we'll come to that. As far as, you know, I, I mean, I think the issues, there were so many issues that were unresolved out of out of patriation. Right. It was a very uh, open ended provision that uh, did not specifically mention title, that did not specifically mention the inherent right to self-government. I think the the biggest issue for Indigenous communities, at least from my reading, is the recognition of the inherent right to self-government and, um, you know, wanting those issues to be clearly acknowledged. I think financing and financing of self-government are part of that, too. But all of those things, I think, were just, you know, skirted around. I want to hit the rewind button here, because while Harper's passive resistance is probably the most famous moment of the Meech Lake period, important things had also been happening back in Newfoundland, where Deborah Coyne and Clyde Wells were fighting to make sure that whatever had happened in Manitoba, Meech still would not pass. Over the course of, say, six months, I remember writing, uh, and, and these are in the, the National Archives, the, the um, memos to him on different aspects of the accord uh because when i got out there there was a first minister's meeting called in ottawa so there was some prep preparation for that to begin with right away um what i think i recall is that wells he was certainly a public figure at that point but he hadn't done that many speeches he hadn't sort of gelled his position and and i knew uh and i certainly wasn't alone in this that once that happened all the people that I was aware of that I'd been working with over almost three years would have a new, you know, standard bearer, shall we say. And so I guess from my perspective, uh, none of this surprised me. And I was there to support him in any way that I could make sure he was well informed and so forth. But in addition, once, um, as I expected, the flood of correspondence started coming in, in this pre-internet day. Um, I helped set up a little unit in his office to reply to everybody because I felt that was very important to keep up. What I knew to be the case was this strong feeling across Canadians generally that this was not a, a good accord. And so I guess from my perspective, I saw him as the person who could keep that coalition, shall we say, of Canadians together in a, in a very real sense. So a lot of it was, was uh, get, getting his message out because it was listened to more because he was a premier. Finally, there was somebody with um, political uh, power that uh, Mulroney had to listen to. 
So Wells' institutional position made him an especially powerful messenger, but at this point we still don't actually know what exactly his message was and what his vision was for the Constitution of Canada. Um, he was very conscious of wanting a more democratic, shall we say, way of bringing the regions into uh, and provinces into the centre. And so he was very much a constitutionalist, uh, and so am I, but I'm not, I don't want to make it just about him and I, because him and me, because everybody who was opposed to me or concerned about it had similar vision. So less the kind of politician that deals with, you know, backroom deals, you rub my back, I'll rub yours, um, first minister's conferences where they're not very accountable, you know, things behind closed doors. He was right out, out front. And I, and, and, and I think that is the same kind of thing that, you know, condemned Meech from, in my view, from the beginning. It was just this deal cooked up by 10 guys in a room and people felt excluded. I think the same, his same suggestions for changing it for the new, you know, a new preamble to the constitution, which I certainly shared, or for a Senate that would be elected and accountable. Those were all the same kind of instincts that most people, in my view, uh, would, when they thought about it, agreed with. And they didn't like the style it, it, when it when it came down to it. If you had to choose a style of governing, and you know, even for people that aren't constitutional experts, they, you instinctively preferred a Clyde Wells to a Brian Mulroney. And and so, in looking at the the Constitution from 1982 and the structure of the Federation, he, like so many of all of, of us that opposed it, saw the dynamics. So, for example, you entrench. First Minister's conferences, you know, just meetings, side meetings, then you're entrenching something unaccountable. And once you make it constitutional, it has that much more power, you, you know, respect or whatever that it shouldn't have. Like, see, so you have to be very careful about what you put in and out of the Constitution. What you, you have to make very clear that it's about people. That's where the power comes from, not from First Ministers and, and so forth. Um, so, yeah, that he just, he had that uh, through and through. Um, and I think everybody will tell you that um, uh, he, he, his knowledge was as, as broad as anybody. So he came through as the, the premier of uh, uh, the smallest or the less, least populous province um, of Newfoundland and Labrador. But still, he was the most articulate and ends up being the standard bearer for the vast majority of Canadians in this debate. So there are a number of different threads here, but the key point is that Wells was first and foremost a Democrat who rejected Meech essentially for two reasons. One, because he viewed it as a product of an undemocratic, elite, backroom process. And two, because he disliked the way that it seemed to place one province, Quebec, above the other nine in terms of power and status. Now, in the end, given Elijah Harper's actions in Manitoba, there was no need for a final vote in Newfoundland, and Wells accordingly adjourned the legislature before the Meech deadline to leave the accord unratified in both provinces, thereby stopping the Meech amendment process dead in its tracks. The question that we're left with then is what Meech represents when we look back at it from here, and the simple answer, I think, is that it was a moment of overlapping collective action, 
a story about the power of people to hold the people in power to account. And while Elijah Harper and Clyde Wells evidently had very different constitutional visions and very different reasons for opposing the accord, you can nonetheless see both of them and their many supporters as part of a temporary makeshift coalition against Meech that began to grow and expand and flourish, basically from the moment the accord went public. Now, we focused on this ad hoc anti-Meech coalition in this episode because I think it helps us understand what ultimately happens with the Charlottetown referendum in 1992. But the thing is that by focusing on this story, albeit for good reasons, uh, we've neglected the equally important story of those who understandably and very reasonably supported the Meech Accord. And in particular, we've neglected to tell the story of Quebec and its further deeper alienation with the rejection of the Accord, a package that was after all carefully curated to renew Quebec's relationship with the rest of Canada. At the start of the next episode then, we'll try to correct this by returning to Quebec as the dust of Meech's failure settles, and as Quebecers are forced to reflect yet again on how to structure their collective future. And on this point, very briefly, here's Professor Daniel Turp to end the episode. It, it creates a, a lot of frustration. That's why, you know, the following day there was hundreds of thousands of people in, 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 this, in the streets of Montreal, you know, saying, okay, now it's time to become dependent. You have a evidence now that Canadians are not able to accept what Quebec is, what it wants. And, and, and the, we've tried, Monsieur Bourassa tried, and Monsieur Parizeau, you know, said to Monsieur Bourassa then the following day, you're my prime minister, let's go ahead and let's become independent. And Monsieur Bourassa himself said that Quebec had the right to decide, has choice with that famous declaration of the National Assembly. And then that led, as yes, you know, to the election of the bloc, the election of the Parti Québécois and the 1995 referendum.